Section 7. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Rose Terry Cook, 1827-1892 Rose Terry was born in Hartford, Connecticut, in 1827, of an old and well-known family, and there nearly all the first half of her life was passed. After that she was little there, spending a number of years with her married sister in Collinsville, and for fifteen years following her own marriage in Winstead, Connecticut. The last five years of her life were passed in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where she died in 1892. An uneventful life, it might be said, but she had the temperament that makes events. Intensity was the keynote of her nature, the source of her gifts and of her defects, in appearance she was tall and slight, with dark hair, and large dark eyes that dominated her slender oval face, and melted or sparkled with the mood or the occasion. This versatility of temper was deeply founded in her, and is manifest in her work, as in the deep overflowing sentiment of her poems, and the almost rollicking humor of her stories, or the tenderness suddenly giving way to bitterness. Her first literary work was in verse, her earliest venture, before she was twelve years old, being some verses sent privately to the Hartford Current, and appearing there to the great awe and delight of the little author. As time went on, the creative impulse strengthened and took shape, and she became known as a writer of true poetic feeling and fine rhythmical instinct. In 1860 she gathered her poems into a little volume, which won for her a wider recognition. Quite late in life, in 1888, a complete collection of her poems was made, but she had hardly surpassed that earlier work, which included such gems as Then, Trailing Arbutus, The Fishing Song. Besides these, the two villages and Nunets should be named as having found their way into many hearts and as being very perfect specimens of her poetic gift. But it was in her stories that all her rich powers were enlisted. She was one of the first to open by the storyteller's art New England life to the reading public. This field had since been worked to a finer culture, but she brought to the opening of the ground a racy vigor and freshness, a spontaneity, a sparkle, that we could ill spare for the sake of a more delicate finish, and that make her characters stand out with an almost internal force. Among the best of her stories are Freedom Wheeler's Controversy with Providence, The Deacon's Week, Polly Mariner, A Town Mouse and a Country Mouse, and Odd Miss Todd. But it is hard to make an exclusive choice among them.
the deacon's week which she esteemed the best thing she ever did has had a world-wide fame and usefulness having been translated into as many as four languages and widely distributed as a tract between the years eighteen eighty one and eighteen ninety one she gathered her stories into book form under these titles somebody's neighbors root-bound the sphinx's children happy dodd huckleberries in eighteen eighty nine appeared her one novel steadfast an interesting story with much fine character drawing but it is as a writer of short stories of new england life and of some lovely poems that rose terry cook will live selection the reverend thomas tucker as a parson by rose terry cook from some account of thomas tucker the social duties of a settled clergyman might have pressed on him onerously but as if providence saw that he was best fitted for a life of solitude just as the green street church had listened to their learned and pious pastor for the first time after his installation in their pulpit keziah his sister was seized with a sudden and dangerous illness the kind women of the church rallied around thomas tucker in this hour of his need and nursed keziah with unremitting kindness but all in vain she dropped out of life as silently and patiently as she had endured living and it remained only to say that the place which knew her should now know her no more for she left behind her no dear friend but her brother and not an enemy even thomas missed her rather as a convenience than a companion profiting in a certain sense by her death as it aroused keenly the sympathy of the church for his loss and loneliness and attached them to him by those links of pity that are proverbially almost as strong as love in any other circumstances the green street church would no doubt have discovered early in their relation that mr tucker was as unfit for any pastoral position as he had been for that post in the college chapel but much was forgiven him out of his people's abundant kindness and their respect for his learning his simplicity and his sincere piety forbade their objecting at first to his great deficiencies in those things considered quite as needful to pulpit success as the power of preaching and the abundance of knowledge it happened soon after keziah's death that mr tucker was called to officiate at the funeral of one of his wealthiest parishioners a man who had just come back from europe and been killed in a railroad accident on the way to his home in deerford he was personally unknown to thomas tucker but his character was notorious he went to church and bought an expensive pew there merely as a business speculation it gave him weight in the eyes of his fellows to be outwardly respectable as well as rich but he was niggardly to his family ostentatious overreaching and cruel as death to the poor and struggling who crossed his path or came into his employ the reverend mr tucker improved the occasion he took for the text of that funeral address what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul 
and after a pungent comparison between the goods of this world and the tortures of a future state he laid down his spectacles and wound up with and now beloved i have laid before you the two conditions think ye that to-day he whose mortal part lieth before you would not utter a loud amen to my statement yea if there be truth in the word of god he who hath left behind him the gain of life and greed is now crying aloud for a drop of water to cool his parched tongue and longing for an hour of probation wherein to cast off the fetters of ill-gotten gold and sit with lazarus gathering crumbs in the company of dogs wherefore seeing that god hath spoken sharply to you all in the sudden requirement of this rich man's soul let his admonition sink into your souls seek ye first the kingdom of god and cast in your lot with the poor of this world rich in faith and be ready to answer joyfully when the master calls of course the community was outraged but for a few kindly souls who stood by the poor parson and insisted that keziah's death had unsettled his mind and not a few who felt that he had manfully told the truth without fear or favour and could not help feeling a certain respect for him he would have been asked forcibly to resign that very week as it was the indignant widow went over to another denomination without delay i will never set foot in that church again she said how can one be safe where a man is allowed to say whatever he chooses in the pulpit a ritual never can be personal or insulting i shall abide by the prayer-book hereafter in due time this matter faded out of the popular mind as all things do in course of time and nothing came between pastor and people except a gradual sense on their part that solomon was right when he said much study is a weariness to the flesh not only the students flesh but also theirs who have to hear reiterated all the dry outcome of such study but parson tucker's career was not to be monotonous his next astonishing performance was at a wedding a very pretty young girl an orphan living in the house of a relative equally poor but grasping and ambitious was about to marry a young man of great wealth and thoroughly bad character a man whom all men knew to be a drunkard a gambler and a dissolute fellow though the only son of a cultivated and very aristocratic family poor emily manning had suffered all those deprivations and mortifications which result from living in a dependent condition aware that her presence was irksome and unwelcome while her delicate organization was overtaxed with work whose limits were as indefinite as the food and clothing which were its only reward she had entered into this engagement in a sort of desperation goaded on by the widowed sister-in-law with whom she lived and feeling that nothing could be much worse than her present position parson tucker knew nothing of this but he did know the character of royal van wyck and when he saw the pallid 
delicate shrinking girl beside this already worn-out debased bestial creature ready to put herself into his hands for life the daemon lay hold upon him and spake again he opened the service as was customary in hartland with a short address but surely never did such a bridal exhortation enter the ears of man and woman before my friends he began matrimony is not to be lightly undertaken as the matter of a day it is an awful compact for life and death that ye enter into here young man if thou hast not within thyself the full purpose to treat this woman with pure respect loyal service and tender care to guard her soul's innocence as well as her bodily welfare to cleave to her only and keep thyself from evil thoughts and base indulgences for her sake if thou art not fit as well as willing to be priest and king of a clean household standing unto her in character and act in god's stead so far as man may draw back even now from thine intent for a lesser purpose is sacrilege here and will be damnable infamy hereafter royal van wyck opened his sallow green eyes with an insolent stare he would have sworn roundly had not some poor instinct of propriety restrained him as it was he did not speak but looked away he could not bear the keen deep-set eyes fixed upon him and a certain gaunt majesty in the parson's outstretched arm and severe countenance daunted him for the moment but thomas tucker saw that he had no intention of accepting this good advice so he turned to emily daughter he said if thou art about to enter into this solemn relation pause and consider if thou hast not such confidence in this man that thy heart faileth not an iota at the prospect of a lifelong companionship with him if thou canst not trust him utterly respect him as thy lord and head yield him an obedience joyful and secure next to that thou givest to god if he is not to thee the one desirable friend and lover if thou hast a thought so free of him that it is possible for thee to imagine another man in his place without a shudder if thou art not willing to give thyself to him in the bonds of a lifelong inevitable covenant of love and service if it is not the best and sweetest thing earth can offer thee to be his wife and the mother of his children stop now stop at the very horns of the altar lest thou commit the worst sin of woman sell thy birthright for a mess of pottage and find no place for repentance though thou seek it carefully and with tears carried away with his zeal for truth and righteousness speaking as with the sudden inspiration of a prophet parson tucker did not see the terror and the paleness deepening as he spoke on the bride's fair countenance as he extended his hand toward her she fell in a dead faint at his feet all was confusion in an instant the bridegroom swore and mrs manning screamed while the relations crowded about the insensible girl and tried to revive her she was taken at once upstairs to her room and the wedding put off till the next day as mrs manning announced and you won't officiate at it old fellow i'll swear to that 
roared the baffled bridegroom with a volley of profane epithets shaking his fist in the parson's calm face having taken the sword i am content to perish thereby even as scripture saith answered thomas tucker stalking out of the door that night as he sat in his study the door opened softly and emily manning came in and knelt at the side of the parson's chair i have no place to go to sir she whispered with trembling lips you saved me to-day will you help me now i was going to sin but i didn't know it till you told me then it was not sin my child said parson tucker gently sin is conscious transgression and from that thou hast instantly departed but what could i do she asked her eyes full of tears i have no home marcia is tired of me and i have no other friends i wanted a home so much oh i was wrong for i did not love him and now i have to run away from marcia she was so dreadful and what shall i do poor child he said tenderly sit here i will help my old woman in the kitchen below shall fetch thee to a chamber keziah brought her with us she is kind and will care for thee while i go to bring a friend so saying the parson rung his bell for old jane gave the girl over to her care and set out himself for president winthrop's house i have brought you a good work he said abruptly to mrs winthrop come with me there is a soul in need at my house mrs winthrop was used to this sort of summons from the parson they had been good friends ever since the eccentric interview brought about by jack mason's valentine and when charity was needed eleanor winthrop's heart and hand were always ready for service she put on hat and shawl and went with the parson to his house hearing on the way all the story mr tucker she said as he finished the recital aren't you going to make much trouble for yourself by your aggressive honesty thomas looked at her bewildered but the truth is to be spoken he replied as if that were the end of the controversy and she was silent recognizing the fact that here conventions were useless and self-preservation not the first law of grace if it is of nature all mrs winthrop's kindliness was aroused by the pitiful condition of emily manning she consoled and counselled her like a mother and soon after took her into her household as governess to the little girls whom mr winthrop's first wife had left him making for the grateful girl a happy home which in after years she left to become the wife of a good man toward whom she felt all that parson tucker had required of her on that painful day which she hated now to remember and as the parson performed this ceremony he turned after the benediction to eleanor winthrop and said with a beam of noble triumph on his hollow visage blessed be the lord i have saved a soul alive but long before this happy sequel came about he had other opportunities to distinguish himself there came a sunday when the service of infant baptism was to be performed and when the fair sweet babes who had behaved with unusual decorum were returned to their mother's arms and the parson according to order said let us pray he certainly offered the most peculiar petition ever heard in the green street church 
after expressing the usual desire that the baptized children might grow up in the nurture and admonition of the lord he went on but if it please thee o father to recall these little ones to thyself in the innocence of their infancy we will rejoice and give thanks and sound thy praises upon the harp and timbrel yea with the whole heart we will praise thee for we know the tribulations and snares the evil and folly and anguish of this life below and we know that not one child of Adam coming to man's estate is spared that bitter and woeful cup that is pressed out from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which our progenitors ate of in thy garden of paradise, and thereby sinned and fell, and bequeathed to us their evil longings and habitual transgression. They are the blessed who are taken away in their infancy, and lie forever by green pastures and still waters in the fields of heaven. We ask of thee no greater or better gift for these lambs than early to be folded, where none shall hurt or destroy in all thy holy mountain and the love that is above all mother's love shall cradle them throughout eternity. Amen. Not a mother in that congregation failed to shiver and tremble at this prayer, and tears fell fast and thick on the babes who slumbered softly in the tender arms that had gathered them home, after consecrating them to that God who yet they were so unwilling should literally accept their offering fifty pairs of eyes were turned on parson tucker with the look of a bear robbed of its cubs but far more were drowned in tears of memory and regret poignant still but strangely soothed by this vivid presentation of the blessedness wherein their loved and lost were safely abiding much comment was exchanged in the church porch after service on the parson's prayer we ought to hold a special meeting to pray that the lord will not answer such a petition cried one indignant mother whose little flock were clinging about her skirts and who had left twin babies yet unbaptized at home it is rather hard on you auntie said the graceless jack mason the speaker's nephew now transformed into an unpromising young lawyer in hartland you'd rather have your babies sin and suffer with you than have em safe in their little graves hadn't you i don't go with the parson myself i didn't so much mind his funeral gymnastic over old baker and his disposition of that party soul in hades because i never before supposed roosevelt baker had a soul and it was quite reassuring to be certain he met with his dues somewhere but he's worse than herod about the babies however the parson did not hear or know what was said of him and in an ignorance that was indeed bliss continued to preach and minister to his people in strict accordance with his own views of duty his next essay was a pastoral visit to one of his flock recently a widow a woman weak in body and mind both desirous above all things to be proper and like other people to weep where she must, smile when she ought, wear clothes like the advance guard of fashion, and do the thing to be done always, whether it was the right and true thing or not. Her husband had spent all her fortune in speculation. 
taken to drink as a refuge from folly and reproach at home, and under the influence of the consoling fluid, had turned his wife out of doors whenever he felt in the mood, kicked her, beaten her, and forced her, in fear of her life, over and over to steal from her own house and take refuge with the neighbors, and ask from them the food she was not allowed at home. At last the end came. Parson Tucker was sent for to see the widow and arrange for funeral services. She had not been present at the Baker funeral, or indeed been in Deerford for some years after that occasion, so she adhered to the conventions and when Parson Tucker reached the house he was shown into a darkened room where the disconsolate woman sat posed already in deep mourning, a widow's cap perched upon her small head. A woman would have inferred at once that Mrs. Spring had anticipated the end of Joe's last attack of mania a potu, and prepared these funeral garments beforehand. But Thomas Tucker drew no such conclusions. He sat down silently and grimly, after shaking hands with Mrs. Spring, and said nothing. She began the conversation. "'This is a dreadful affliction, Mr. Tucker. I don't know how I shall live through it.' "'It is terrible indeed,' said the parson. "'I do not wonder, madam, that you mourn to see your partner cut off in his sins without time for repentance.' but no doubt you feel with gratitude the goodness which hath delivered you from so sore a burden what screamed the widow i speak of god's mercy in removing from your house one who made your life a terror and your days full of fear and suffering you might have been as others bereaved and desolate and mourning to your life's end i don't know what you mean parson tucker said mrs spring sharply removing a dry handkerchief from unwet eyes poor dear joseph is taken away from me and i'm left a desolate widow and you talk in this way i'm sure he had the best of hearts that ever was it was only as you may say accidental to him to be a little overcome at times and i'm i'm oh here she gave a little hysterical scream and did some well-executed sobbing but the parson did not mind it. He rose up before her, gaunt and grey. Madam, did not this man beat and abuse and insult and starve you when he was living, or have I been misinformed? Well, oh dear, what dreadful questions! Did he? thundered the parson. He didn't mean to. He was excited, Mr. Tucker. He... He was drunk, and is that excuse... "'Not so, madam. You know and I know that his death is a relief, and a release to you. I cannot condole with you on that which is not a sorrow,' and he walked rigidly out of the door. "'Is it necessary to say that Mr. Spring's funeral did not take place in Deerford? His widow suddenly remembered that he had been born in a small town among the hills of West Massachusetts, and she took his body thither.' to be laid beside his dear parents, as she expressed it. Things had now come to a bad pass for Parson Tucker. The church committee had held more than one conference over their duty toward him. It was obvious that they had no real reason for dismissing him, but his ghastly honesty, and that hardly offers a decent excuse to depose a minister of the gospel. 
They hardly knew how to face the matter, and were in this state of perplexity when Mr. Tucker announced one Sunday, after the sermon, that he would like to see the church committee at his study on Tuesday night, and accordingly they assembled there, and found President Winthrop with the parson. "'Brethren,' said Thomas Tucker, after the preliminary welcome had passed, i have sent for you to-night to say that having now been settled over your church eight years i have found the salary you paid me so much more than was needed for my bodily support that i have laid by each year as the surplus came to hand that i might restore to you your goods the sum is now something over eight thousand dollars and is placed to the credit of your chairman in the first deerford bank the committee stared at each other as if each one were trying to arouse himself from sleep. The chairman at last spoke. But, Mr. Tucker, this is unheard of. The salary is yours. We do not desire to take it back. We can't do it. That which I have not earned, Brother Street, is not mine. I am a solitary man. My expenses are light. It must be as I said." moreover i have to say that i hereby withdraw from your pulpit of necessity i have dealt with our best physicians concerning a certain anguish of the breast which seizes me at times unawares and they all concur that an evil disease lieth upon me i have not much time to live and i would fain withdraw from activities and duties that are external and prepare for the day that is at hand the committee were pained as well as shocked they felt guilty to think how they had plotted this very thing among themselves and they felt too a certain awe and deep respect for this simple unworldly nature this supernatural integrity mr street spoke again his voice was husky if this is so mr tucker we must of course accept your resignation but my dear pastor keep the money you will need care and comforts now this trouble has come on you. We can't take it back. Parson Tucker looked at him with a grave, sweet smile. I thank you, brother, but I have a private store. My sister left her worldly goods to me, and there is enough and to spare for my short sojourn, he answered. But it isn't according to the fitness of things that we should take your salary back, Parson Tucker, put in bustling Mr. Taylor, what upon earth should we do with it? Friend, said the parson, the eternal fitness of things is but the outcome of their eternal verity. I have not, as I said, earned that wage, and I must restore it. It is for you to decide what end it shall serve in the church. A few more words passed between them, and then each wrung the parson's hand and left him, not all with unmoved hearts or dry eyes. "'I don't wonder he's going to die,' exclaimed Mr. Street, as the committee separated at a street corner. "'He's altogether too honest to live.' From that day Thomas Tucker sank quietly toward his grave. Friends swarmed about him, and if delicacies of food could have saved him, the dainty stores poured in upon him would have renewed his youth, but all was in vain.' President Winthrop sat by him one summer day, and seeing a sad gleam in his sunken eye, asked gently, "'You are ready and willing to go, Brother Tucker?' Nothing doubting a glad assent. But the parson was honest to the last. "'No,' he said, "'I do not want to die. I am afraid. I do not like strange and new things. I do not want to leave my books and my study.' 
but dear brother broke in the astonished president it is a going home to your father's house i know not what a home is friend in the sense of regret or longing for one my early home was but as the egg to the bird a prison wherein i was born from which i fled nor was my knowledge of a father one that commends itself as a type of good i trust indeed that the master will take me by the hand even as he did peter upon the water but the utterance of my secret soul is even that of the apostle with the keys lord save or i perish but you have been a power for good and a close follower of peter's lord said mr winthrop altogether at a loss for the proper thing to say to this peculiar man one thing alone have i been enabled to do brother winthrop for which i can with heart and soul thank god even at this hour yea i thank him that i have been enabled to speak the truth even in the face of lies and deceptions through his upholding a smile of unearthly triumph filled every line of the wasted face and lit his eyes with a flash of divine light as he said this he grasped close the friendly hand he was holding turned his cheek to the pillow and closed his eyes passing into that life of truth and love that awaited him even as a child that lies down in the darkness trembling fearful and weary but awakes in the dawn of a new day in the heart of home still said president winthrop to his wife as they walked home after the funeral i believe in the good old proverb eleanor that the truth is not to be spoken at all times and i never believed in it so little she cried indignantly think what a record he has left what respect hangs about his memory do we know how many weak souls have relied on his example and held to the truth when it was hard because he did and could it is something to be heroic in these days even if it is unpopular the president shrugged his shoulders from the sphinx's children and other peoples copyrighted eighteen eighty six by ticknor and company end of section seven